Hello, everyone tuning in from everywhere around the world for this exciting event. I am Marie Ruel, Director of the Poverty Health and Nutrition Division at IFPRI, and I'm truly delighted to welcome all of you to the 30th Annual Martin Foreman Lecture. For those of you who are not familiar with this series, the annual Foreman Lecture commemorates the significant impacts of Martin J. Foreman on international nutrition when he led the Office of Nutrition at USC AID for more than 20 years. Now, this year, 2020, is one that we will all remember for a variety of reasons. It's also the first year that we are holding a virtual Foreman Lecture. I hope we're not starting a new trend for this coming decade, but I'm confident that this lecture will be a great success nonetheless. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Yo Swinin, IFPRI's Director General, who will provide some introductory remark. The screen is yours, Yo. Thank you very much, Marie. Uh, I am very delighted to be able to give this introduction. Um, I'm delighted to welcome everybody here to the 30th annual Martin J. Foreman Memorial Lecture, which IFPRI has had the pleasure to host since 2002, almost 20 years. The annual lecture commemorates the noteworthy contributions Dr. Foreman made to international nutrition. Dr. Foreman, as Marie already mentioned, headed the Office of Nutrition of the US Agency for International Development for more than, 30, for more than 20 years. He was instrumental in drawing attention to nutrition planning and played a critical role in the development of the United Nations Subcommittee on Nutrition, as well as several micronutrient initiatives around the world. I'd like to take this opportunity to appreciate the commitment of USAID to the formal lecture series, as well as its leadership in the field of nutrition. And it's a, a pleasure to see uh, Sean Baker with us today, Sean, who is the uh, chief nutritionist of USAID. Each year, a speaker is selected to give the Martin J. Foreman lecture based on their noteworthy contributions in enhancing nutrition at the global stage. They are invited to present their personal and often unconventional views on how to improve nutrition worldwide. This is, of course, a very important topic and important contributions all the time, but particularly in 2020, I would say. The situation of nutrition globally needs unconventional views. We know that hunger is on the rise again in the world since 2015. We know that we are uh, against the planetary boundaries with our food systems. And we know that 3 billion people cannot afford a healthy diet. And this was before COVID-19. COVID-19 has worsened, has exacerbated these uh, trends already and has made nutrition and healthy diets more difficult to get for many poor people in the world. So for this, I really look forward to learning about uh, Dr. Piwoch's uh, contributions as a nutrition champ uh, champion. She has dedicated her life to improving the lives of women and children around the world through better nutrition. She has a very long CV, and I'm not going to go in details on this. Marie Ruel uh, will talk more about this, but she has published an, a long list of very important articles. She has also played an important role as a leader both at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and in, for example, her activities in the Sun Movement and in a number of other international areas. Um, I very much would like to recognize the Foreman uh, Lecture Selection Committee under the leadership of, of Dr. Marie Ruel. And I also warmly thank the members of that committee, which include Sean Baker, Alan Burke, 
Kinnan Foreman, Marcia Griffiths, Mira Shakir, uh, Shikar, I'm sorry, and Kelly Stewart for helping choose this year's speaker, Dr. Ellen Pivoch. Every year we have the privilege of having the family of Dr. Foreman join us for this lecture. And today we are uh, joined here by Dr. Foreman's son, Kenan Foreman. And we are um, uh, honored, we are, it's a pleasure for us that this family tradition is continued here. So with this, uh, I'm going to give the floor to Marie Ruvel for more details on the illustrious career of Dr. Pivoch. Marie, over to you. Thank you, Yo. Uh, before we do the introductions of, or for Ellen, uh, I'd like to invite Kenan Foreman to give us a few words. Uh, Kenan is, is Dr. Foreman's son, as was mentioned, uh, and he has participated in every lecture since 1990. And like for all of us, it's his first virtual lecture. So Kenan, uh, I invite you to give a few remarks. Thank you. Marie, thank you, and uh, really appreciate all the efforts that went into making this year happen. Um, definitely a strange year for all of us, but we are incredibly excited uh, to be here, uh, albeit virtually. Um, I wanted to thank uh, IFPRI especially for their, their constant support of this series and this lecture, and it is amazing that 30 years have passed, um, but it's, uh, it's, it's really incredible, and your efforts are, are really appreciated by our family. Um, thank you, thank you again to uh, everyone on the committee. As uh, as as Yo had said, um, really every year it's it's wonderful that people get together and and come up to uh, to to a, a final sort of selection of, of a speaker, and we are incredibly appreciative of everyone. Um, and and again, just to just to mention, uh, of course, Alan, um, who has been there from the beginning, Alan Berg and uh, Marie and Marsha and Mira and of, and of course, Sean, um, who has not only been on the selection committee, but is very active in the Foreman Fellowship and making, uh, making that come to reality as well uh, at AID. We're incredibly appreciative. Um, and also I need to say Katarla from IFPRI who, who really uh, does a tremendous amount of work. Um, on behalf of my family, we are in incredibly grateful to all who, who not only work to put this together, but also who, who are in attendance. And um, again, as 30 years uh, go by, it's, it's amazing. It's a blink of an eye, but my, my entire family uh, is, is grateful. Um, and then we are honored to have Ellen speaking this year. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to do it. And we really look forward to, to hearing what you have to say. Thank you, Ken. And, and now I'd like to introduce Sean Baker, Chief Nutritionist at USCID for a few remarks. Uh, thank you so much, Marie, and uh, uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to start off really for thanking both IFPRI and the Foreman family for continuing this tradition of 30 years of the Foreman lecture. Uh, it's really quite extraordinary. And I also you know, the persistence of doing this during this pandemic year and, and during a, a in a virtual environment. Whereas I think as Yo has laid out, if anything, this sort of leadership and lecture and bringing attention to nutrition is more important now than ever. Um, it's just, it's a real pleasure for me uh, to return to the Foreman Lecture representing USAID. And it's a very humbling to be representing USAID as chief nutritionist and 
I'm incredibly indebted to this role uh, to Dr. Foreman's uh, legacy. Um, as I was delving into my research back in 2013, I dealt, I really developed a strong bond with Dr. Foreman as I learned just how fundamental his role was in positioning vitamin A through research and programming. And as many of you who may know me uh, on the event today, I have, uh, vitamin A has played probably an outsized role in my career. I would say an evidence-based role, outsized role in my career. And so it's many, one of the many areas where Dr. Foreman's legacy continues to live on and saves lives throughout the world. Um, I won't steal Ellen's thunder because I know Ellen, you'll speak also to Dr. Foreman's legacy, uh, but I think this lecture also uh, emphasizes USAID's continued commitment to elevating nutrition across the agency. Uh, I was pleased to join uh, USAID this year as the USAID's first chief nutritionist uh, to really uh, lead the leadership council, which brings together leadership across all parts of USAID that are responsible for nutrition. And it, it really underscores our understanding that good nutrition is foundational to everything we care about as an agency. And that to deliver good nutrition, we need to have the health systems, the food systems and humanitarian response work together. Um, USAID has over five decades of leadership in nutrition. And it really, I think that leadership is really building foundationally on, on Dr. Foreman's legacy. Dr. Foreman recognized, among other things, the importance of investing in people. And Kenan has referred to the, the fellowship program. The, the huge workforce, the most important part of the workforce on nutrition we have is in our field missions or the uh, Foreign Service Nationals who lead on nutrition. And part of the legacy of Dr. Foreman is the Foreman Fellowship where we are able to bring in foreign service nationals from field missions. Over the last five years, we've brought in over 13, uh, from 13 different field missions that are nutrition priority countries. And it's this incredible exchange of their on the ground uh, expertise with uh, connecting to the Washington colleagues. Um, and these fellows have had the opportunity to represent at USAID and global events, uh, contribute to the design, not just of national programs, but global programs. And perhaps most importantly, are incredibly strong nutrition champions in the field where action matters. Um, I had the opportunity to learn the story of a recent fellow from Uganda, Alfred Boyo. And while he was here in DC, obviously not this year, but the year prior, uh, he was able to visit women, infants and children's clinics or WIC uh, clinics in the US and to learn about how these clinics play such a critical role in their communities and, and, and make uh, the connections to other services. Um, and obviously the situation in the US is somewhat different than the situation in Uganda, but I think it served as a real illustration of how providing good nutrition is a global uh, requirement and it really brings together our common humanity. Um, the, the, I think that these types of cross-country learning opportunities are really the core of what Dr. Foreman believed in. And another clear example of his lasting legacy within USAID and across the nutrition landscape. Um, I know Ellen is going to uh, inspire us as we look forward, uh, but I think it's worth repeating as much as Yo had said at the beginning, that 
this COVID-19 pandemic has altered everything we do at the agency. And next year, and this is an incredibly timing, timely lecture because next year is really make or break. Uh, as we uh, start accelerating recovery from a COVID altered world, we really must galvanize action and commitment to deliver nutrition for the next generation. Uh, I wanted to quote Dr. Foreman uh, who said, I think this was back in 1965, the task is huge, but the rewards are infinitely greater. Uh, and so we look forward to Ellen's comments and thanks Ellen for taking this on and sharing with us your words of wisdom. Back over to you, Marty. Thank you, Sean. Um, now it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Ellen Piwaz. Ellen is a great colleague and a friend of many of us listening today. And I think I can speak on behalf of the nutrition community and say that we're truly delighted that Ellen, Ellen was selected for the third, 30th Foreman Lecture this year. Ellen has had a prestigious career. She's a visionary and she has applied her vision and her passion to all the work she's undertaken. Ellen recently um, retired from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation where she worked for 13 years, shaping and supporting the foundation's evolving nutrition strategy. During her tenure at the foundation, Ellen managed a vast and highly diverse portfolio of grants and initiatives spanning from research on healthy birth, growth and development, testing new interventions and delivery models for improving maternal infant and young child nutrition, costing and financing to achieve global nutrition targets, strengthening country data systems and capacity, developing and using analytical modeling tools for decision-making and strengthening overall the global nutrition architecture. Ellen also innovated in the, the mere design of the grants by creating learning grants where research and implementation worked hand in hand to generate relevant evidence or program and policy making. Prior to joining the foundation, Ellen was a senior advisor to the Africa Bureau Office of Sustainable Development at USAID and was well recognized for the quality of her research and her work on HIV AIDS, focusing on the prevention of mother to child transmission. She also held adjunct faculty appointments at the Johns Hopkins University and the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and she obtained her doctoral degree at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Welcome, Ellen, and we really look forward to your presentation. The, the, the screen is yours. Thank you so much, Marie. <clears throat> when I received the invitation in August to give this lecture, I have to say I was a little surprised and very humbled. Surprised because I had retired in April, actually eight months ago today, and was enjoying what I thought was newfound obscurity. And the world has changed profoundly since I decided to turn my attention elsewhere. So I wondered what insights could I possibly have in this new reality? However, I've never been able to say no to Marie, to Sean and to others on that selection committee. So here we are. Next slide, please. I accepted the invitation to quote, <laughs> offer personal and often unconventional views about major issues related to international nutrition, unquote. The invitation letter also asks that I reflect on my overall body of work, the challenges I faced and what I see as the next frontier for nutrition. 
For those who know me well, you know that I love to question the status quo and I'm not shy about giving my opinions. In fact, in the lead up to my retirement, I made it my duty to share, usually in writing, my parting observations and advice with anyone who would listen. I did this in the hope that my Gates Foundation colleagues and grantees would remember the journey, cherish the victories, learn from my missteps, and at the very least, not repeat history unknowingly. So in a way, this talk is a continuation of that practice, but to a wider audience. I was also profoundly humbled by the invita invitation, humbled not only because of the giants in the field who have given this lecture in the past, but because of the man himself, Dr. Martin J. Foreman. I began my career in the 1980s when Dr. Foreman led the Office of Nutrition at USAID. My first full-time job post-master's degree was working on a project from his office called the Weaning Project, led by Marcia Griffiths. This project applied principles of social marketing to improve complementary feeding practices in several countries around the world, and we evaluated their impact. In retrospect, this experience laid the groundwork for much of what I proceeded to do for the next 35 years. Of course, I did not know this at the time. What I did know was that Dr. Foreman was a formidable man, larger than life, visionary, and deeply committed to evidence-driven dialogue and decision-making. I experienced this firsthand, I have to say, and it had a lasting impact. It was the early days of the weaning project. We were in a meeting to talk about how we would proceed. I don't remember too many details. It was 1985. Dr. Foreman was leading the meeting. At some point in the discussion, I timidly made a comment. I don't recall what I said or the context. I just remember Dr. Foreman's response firmly yet politely suggesting that I ground my future remarks in objective data and evidence. So suffice it to say, this advice has stuck with me for the rest of my career. I cannot think of another time when anybody ever admonished me again for not speaking with, about, or for data and evidence. So indeed, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to Dr. Foreman for setting me on this path. Next slide, please. The title of this talk, as you heard, is Seizing Opportunity from the Jaws of Crisis, a Playbook for Nutrition. After choosing this title, I realized that coming up with a playbook that is both personal and unconventional required a bit of research. This started by reading The History of Nutrition at USAID, published last year. I figured that a playbook for the future had to begin with exploring the past. This is a fascinating publication, and I want to give a shout out to those with the foresight to write it. I think it should be mandatory reading for any student of global nutrition. It won't disappoint. I also interviewed friends and colleagues, including several who worked in Dr. Foreman's Office of Nutrition. I did this not only to learn more about him personally, but also to reflect on how the community approached nutrition in earlier days. I reviewed prior Foreman lectures and asked friends and colleagues what they thought about the future. And to be thought provoking, I tried to drill down on the things that we need to stop doing, which I'll speak to later. Since I have been out of the loop, I listened to at least 30 webinars on the COVID pandemic and its wide ranging consequences. And finally, I tried to read the major global food and nutrition reports, reports that came out this fall, but there were just too many of them. I will say more on this later. Throughout this research, I sought out common truths and new ideas. So what did I learn? Next slide, please. 
from my from, uh, from my exploration of nutrition history, I came up with four common truths. These are things we have known for a long time that hold true today. First, it's clear that the multisectoral nature of nutrition has been recognized for decades. We talk at times like it's a new revelation, but it's not. Dr. Foreman was one of the first to write about the agriculture and nutrition nexus, and that legacy continues today. Next. USAID has long appreciated that nutrition is contextual. In fact, the Office of Nutrition was an early adopter of behavioral research to design locally appropriate solutions. Dr. Foreman knew the importance of investing in people and institutions to create leaders, as we already heard. For example, the breastfeeding world would be vastly different if not for the WellStart program, which trained national breastfeeding coordinators around the world. Next. Next, please. And Dr. Nor Dr. Foreman knew how to get things done in the organization. He knew the political and bureaucratic levers at his disposal and how to use them. So no matter where you work or what you do, knowing how to get things done is essential for translating ideas into action. So my playbook takeaways from this look back are, first, pay attention to history understand and learn from the past. We can't afford to reinvent the wheel just because we weren't there when it was first built. Second, embrace the complex, context-specific, multi-sectoral nature of nutrition. Don't expect a single solution everywhere. Invest in leaders and focus on outcomes and getting things done. So my guess is that many of you are thinking that this is old news, it's the obvious, and it's not provocative at all. And that's fair, but I am just getting started. Next slide. So for this talk, I was asked to reflect on my personal experience. I said I would focus on the period from 2008 onward. So for the next several minutes, I'll speak about my years at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where I had the privilege of approaching global nutrition from a philanthropic donor perspective. When I joined the foundation in 2007, the field of global nutrition seemed to be floundering. We were a community that largely talked to ourselves, often publicly disagreeing with each other about which problems and interventions were more important. Different nutrition subcommunities were not working toward a shared set of goals. We lacked a common narrative and agenda for action. We desperately needed an organized advocacy community to help move things forward and an engaged civil society to create a sense of urgency and call for accountability. Yet rather than build bridges, we seemed to scare away outsiders who did not understand our techno-speak or what to make of our internal disagreements. We were also chronically underfunded, or as some said, our financial support was anemic. We had a narrow base of donors and not much in the way of, of donor coordination. Past mechanisms were largely defunct. We had no overarching framework for investment. And if you were a donor with some resources, as I was at the time, it was hard to know where to invest them and what the returns could be. We had just one target in the MDGs, reducing underweight, but it was embedded in a poverty reduction goal. The prevailing belief then was that nutrition would improve as a result of poverty reduction there was little appreciation of nutrition as a key ingredient for economic development, something actually known in the early 1960s and discussed in the USAID history. 
The World Bank had just published the book, Repositioning Nutrition as Central to Development, but greater traction was needed. Then came the 2008 Lancet Maternal and Child Undernutrition Series. Although this series had its share of critics, I cannot overstate how valuable it was as a launch pad for creating change. The series offered a narrative around maternal and child undernutrition that outsiders, non-nutritionists could understand and act on. Its evidence syntheses quantified the burden and the human cost of inaction. One of the papers estimated the potential impact of scaling existing proven interventions and somewhat controversial, and controversially, another paper highlighted important truths about the dysfunctional global nutrition ecosystem. Without a doubt, this information was timely. The papers came out as the world was experiencing a food price crisis. This was not planned, yet the newly published body of evidence helped us seize a window of political opportunity, which opened as the crisis unfolded, starting with the 2008 Tokyo G8 Summit. The series also galvanized global multi-stakeholder discussions that led to the creation of the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement. Here's what I found. Strategic dissemination of key findings helped motivate more bilateral donors and private philanthropies to invest in nutrition. Global maternal and child undernutrition targets were endorsed in 2012 and subsequently folded into the sustainable development goals in 2015. An engaged civil society and an advocacy community was formed and through SUN, nutrition youth activists, leaders and champions around the world began convening regularly. We saw country demand and political commitment grow as a collective result of these actions. A second Lancet Under Nutrition series was published in 2013, immediately prior to the first Nutrition for Growth Summit in London. The 2013 series reported on progress and it defined for the first time and synthesized evidence on nutrition sensitive actions. Strategic use of this information continued to fuel momentum. And by 2018, the World Bank had over $1 billion in its nutrition pipeline, roughly a hundred fold increase from 2010. So although our knowledge base was incomplete, the evidence we had formed a solid foundation for acting together. We made headway, national political commitment grew, levels of financing increased, and many nutrition indicators improved. Yet even with this positive momentum, we never succeeded in raising sufficient resources and progress was uneven. Pre-COVID, we knew that we had to find new ways to accelerate change. So that's my recap of the past. Where are we today? And more importantly, where are we going? What is the playbook for the future? Sadly, we're living in a profoundly different time, a time when 25 years of progress has been reversed in less than 25 weeks. It's a time when the global economy is contracting, when science is mistrusted, and when misinformation abounds. The COVID pandemic has laid bare common truths about systemic bias and vulnerability. Education, health services, and humanitarian programs have been disrupted. Gender-based violence is on the rise and mental health is stressed everywhere. Next slide, please. 
The pandemic has also brought to light just how integral nutrition and food systems are to health, livelihoods, and the environment. The enormous burden of disease associated with poor nutrition and unhealthy diets, coupled with the unaffordability and declining consumption of healthy foods, underscores that nutrition and food systems belong together and that policies are urgently needed to address food and, food and nutrition issues holistically and coherently. On the positive side, we have seen the power of innovation and the adaptive agility of programs to respond to the crisis. The very speed at which the global community has developed a safe and effective coronavirus vaccine is living proof that where there is a will to invest big and work together, there is a way. So the common truths mentioned earlier still hold today, but there are things we must do differently in the face of these challenges. So here's my playbook and warning, it is where I get a little bit edgy. Next slide, two clicks, if you will. Financing comes first in my playbook. After years of resisting this idea, I've come to the conclusion that we need a dedicated financing mechanism for nutrition. Without a doubt, now is not the best time to argue for another global fund but we've learned the value of being prepared for future windows of opportunity. I'm not the first to suggest this. I've seen recent calls for, the, for a global fund to end malnutrition and a global food systems fund. I don't think we can have both, but we definitely need something. Until now, our strategy has been to advocate for nutrition funding within health, agriculture, and other sectors budgets. Yet nowadays it's become clear that our issues are too big and interconnected to be completely dependent on getting on other sectors agendas. We can't afford to continue with this fragmented approach. We're at a tipping point. It may be now or never. Because of today's circumstances, we won't be able to rely on traditional donor resources to fill our financing gaps. So as a community, we have to learn to be more creative and how we package nutrition and food systems actions. And we have to look for underexploited financial, financial leveraging opportunities. For example, in my research, I learned that the US Development Finance Corporation recently announced its new global strategy, which aims to mobilize $50 billion in private capital by 2025. The DFC roadmap includes food security and nutrition, as well as a focus on financial inclusion. From our past experience, we know it's difficult to raise small amounts of private capital for pro-nutrition, small and medium enterprises. Transaction costs, as well as perceived risks are high. So instead of focusing on what I call single project funding from afar, which has been our norm, those working on innovative financing should consider a portfolio approach packaging together multiple investments in pro-nutrition enterprises, preferably run by and for women, for the DFC and, and other investors in Sub-Saharan Africa. Also on the theme of new avenues for financing, the World Bank recently announced the sale of $100 million of IBRD nutrition bonds to the, to the Nippon Life Insurance Company. 
I'm not 100% sure how these bonds work, but I found it remarkable that a private life insurance company was a willing buyer. We also have the power of nutrition with its money multiplier model, which has been able to leverage funding in non-traditional ways. Power of Nutrition will have new leadership next year. Great timing to play a more significant role in 2021. So these examples suggest that we can be creative and attract new sources of support for nutrition. It's up to us as a community to rise to the challenge and do this on a greater scale and in a more coordinated, not a one-off way. Finally, as we prepare for an uncertain future, we need to adopt an efficiency mindset and learn to do more with less. Mira Shekhar, the nutrition team lead at the World Bank, reminds us that, quote, we need more money for nutrition and more nutrition for the money. There are many ways to make this happen and not enough time to discuss them all. Suffice it to say, difficult decisions and trade-offs must be made. Next. Next in my playbook is putting evidence into action. We live in an age of information overload. Our communities are producing too many global nutrition reports and food systems frameworks for any human to digest. I contributed to this phenomena as a funder and I recognize the value of these undertakings. But too many reports are produced with no plan for how their learnings will be used. This has to change. A few people I interviewed suggested that we need the equivalent of an intergovernmental panel on climate change or IPCC. This is a high level body that serves as a focal point for unified attention and policy coherence on climate issues. If we had this, the remit should be providing greater clarity on and raising the political profile of food systems related policies that take nutrition and the environment into account with a mandate to hasten translation of evidence into action. In the spirit of being propositional and instead of reinventing the wheel, we could consider redesigning the GLOPAN or Global Panel for Agriculture and Food Systems for Nutrition to play this independent role. The panel has written many relevant papers and policy, policy briefs, which are also worth reading. In the meantime, the lead organizations for food and nutrition and their donors should agree to reduce the number and overlap in global reports and frameworks that are published every year. Any reports that are produced ought to have an action plan for metrics with metrics for how contents will be used and what change they will instigate. Next. I would be remiss if I did not mention research, having funded a great deal of it in the past. Our community spends a lot of time on nutrition specific intervention research. It takes years and these studies are expensive. And even then, because context matters, we have a hard time agreeing on how to translate results. We've seen this over and over. With COVID, we're hearing that it's not enough to come up with a new vaccine it's vaccination that really matters. The same is true for nutrition. It's not about having the perfect supplement. It's about strengthening delivery at scale, reaching vulnerable and, ma and marginalized populations, understanding why actions work or not in different contexts and adopting them. 
Previous foreman lecturers have spoken to this need. There is more implementation research going on now than in the past, but it still seems to be investigator driven and not sufficiently directed to, to systems issues and getting impact at scale. My future playbook also proposes a greater focus on policy research. Governments can't abdicate responsibility for diet quality to the private sector or assume that healthy diets are a personal responsibility solved by nutrition education alone. Interesting research has been done recently on the drivers of food choice. The important next step is generating evidence on the combination of policies, including incentives and disincentives that will favorably and sustainably alter the food environment and the choices people make. This research agenda should be developed with policymakers to guarantee relevance and uptake. And compliance and enforcement research questions cannot be overlooked any longer. Next. One of the most important lessons from the past decade is the power of speaking with a unified voice and the self-inflicted pain experienced when we don't. It's not that everyone has to agree on everything or that there's no room for healthy debate. We absolutely need this, but we can accelerate progress if we pit one nutrition issue against another. There should be no more false dichotomies, stunting versus wasting, undernutrition versus overweight and obesity, diet quantity versus quality, prevention versus treatment, and so on. There is strength in numbers. Fragmenting our efforts is like swimming upstream. We have to connect the dots between issues and work better together. Our future advocacy must use a narrative that unites our ass in a synchronized way. A consortium called Standing Together for Nutrition has already formed and could be built upon to help fulfill this goal. Next. Last but not least is something Dr. Foreman knew well. We must invest in, nurture, and empower the next generation of leaders. After all, progress depends on people and relationships. There's something, this is something everyone listening today can commit to doing. Improving nutrition is a long game, and we need to be dedicated to and constant in our efforts to help early and mid-career professionals grow. Today's virtual work environment has enabled people at all levels and from all corners of the world to be part of important conversations about the future. Their voices and these perspectives from the field should continue to be center stage, both heard and heeded. Next slide, please. In closing, I wanna thank you once again for inviting me to give this lecture and for listening today. We're at a critical juncture. 2030 is 10 years away and we're far from our global goals. The future is uncertain. Yet there are political opportunities on the horizon. 2021 will be a year for nutrition action. We have a new administration coming in the next month in the US. Sun is entering a new phase and the UN Food Systems Summit and the Tokyo Nutrition for Growth Summit will happen later next year. In fact, there's a launch event for the Tokyo Summit next week on Monday. 
Albert Einstein is credited, credited with, but did not actually say, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. We need different results, so we must try different approaches. I've offered some ideas today. You may disagree with them and that's fine. The important thing is that we join together to embrace the challenge, seize the opportunity, and come up with a playbook for the new realities that we face. Next slide, please. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ellen. What an exciting and, and engaging and, uh, and uh, very optimistic and uh, very ambitious. <laughs> playbook uh, that you're that you're laying out for us. Um, I forgot to mention to people that uh, you should put your questions in the Q&A box and we will take questions. We have quite a bit of time. Um, so please um, feel free to start putting questions in. Um, Submit your questions on ifree.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag askifree on Twitter. So um, in the absence of questions, uh, <laughs> you can elaborate more. I, I think um, personally, I feel that there are so many very useful recommendations there. And, and I was, I was um, trying to underline a few that uh, I thought were just so important. One of them may seem um, uh, trivial in a way, but has actually done a lot of harm is, is uh, when you mentioned we need advocacy that unites and, um, and I, I think we are continuing to have people that belong to this clan and th this clan, as you were mentioning, examples of, oh, do we call it double duty or triple duty or double burden or, or do, do we focus on, on stunting or, or overweight? And, and, uh, and it is how we are seen outside that we, we can never agree with each other. And I think it's, um, it, it's really a question of turf and should, we should avoid those turfs. So, you know, you mentioned how important it was, but how would you do it? How do we get people to stop trying to push their own agenda and give it a new name so that it will be um, a new, it will be theirs? You know, I, I think one place where we did succeed is the first thousand days. Um, I am amazed how much the first thousand days has been uh, taken up and and has transpired in 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 many other fields, everybody's talking about the first thousand days, not just in health and nutrition, but in many other fields. So um, do you have other, other examples where we have done better or, or how should we um, try to avoid giving the outer world the, this notion that we can never agree on, on anything? That's a great question, Marie. And it's something we've all struggled with. And I think, really in the period from 2008 till um, somewhat recently, we were somewhat successful in that. And I think that that was what the first Lancet series and, and also the repositioning nutrition book helped us do, which was really focus on something that made our work seem doable. And then we tried to create a big tent so that 
many, many voices were included in that, even if your intervention or your issue was not specific to the thousand day period. We tried to create a narrative that other people could understand and find actionable, but be inclusive and open. And it does matter when you don't have a lot of resources, competitiveness among groups is, is natural. So we do have to you know, ensure that there are, you know, we're not in this resource starved environment that we were in before. But I think everybody has to understand and pull together and try to find ways to work together to create what you know, I called a common narrative and agenda for action. And then different groups see where they fit in there and not constantly or try to undermine kind of the overall narrative for the purposes of say scoring points or getting attention to one of the issues within it. It's not an easy task, I agree, it needs leadership. And that's why something that's higher that transcends our individual institutions uh, is often important. So I don't know if this idea of an international intergovernmental panel is, has, is feasible, but something that really you, comes over is an overarching umbrella that allows for a narrative that everyone can buy into. And so we don't seem to be uh, publicly disputing each other, disagreeing with each other on fine points when the main message is trying to raise resources, develop and implement policies as well as interventions and programs that are gonna make a difference at scale. So it is a tall order. If it was easy to do, I think we would have done it. But I think it takes a, a matter of commitment that people look back and say, how did we get this far? Um, what did we do? And that, I think, was one of the things that we definitely tried to do after you know, the 2008 series was create that um, environment. And how can we do it better, bigger, and in a more coordinated way in the future, recognizing that our issues are definitely more complicated now and definitely more in interconnected than they were in the past. So that's my immediate thought. I think people have to commit to it, to, to agree to listen and to work together. Um, and hopefully there'll be a better environment going forward. And I, one last thing I guess I could say is maybe, you know we don't learn about this when we learn about nutrition in school. Uh, this isn't something, this kind of political thinking is not something that we get trained on. And I think maybe there is a, an avenue for, for that as well in the programs that train people that work in our fields to ensure that people learn more how to get things done in the organizations that they work in and how to work together to make bigger things happen. Over to you. Okay, thank you. Uh, we have one question from Julie Howard from CSIS. Please comment on the challenges and opportunities for investing in more nutrition and health-focused agricultural research. For example, less focus on staples. So yeah, I think it's really up to. I'm out of the I'm out of the donor space right now, <laughs> so it's hard for me to follow up whatever I say with actions. But I do think that the, it's really important, as I said, to utilize the time that we're in now to really underscore the fact that um, healthy diets are critical to what we're, we're talking about. Um, a lot of people working in food systems are thinking, as I understand, it's about producing foods and growing economies because agriculture is a big driver of economic growth. 
Um, once and if we blend a nutrition agenda, have our food systems policies really take nutrition and environment into account, I think there's no way to avoid dealing with the issues of not just staples, but the quality of the food and the food environments where people um, live. And um, so I think that taking this um, kind of joined up approach on nutrition and food systems may help divert attention. It's not going to happen automatically. If it would, it would have happened already because we haven't been speaking of this before. But some of the donors and people funding this research need to um, need to prioritize that and, and uh, catalyze that also, I think, to happen. It won't, it won't happen without some of the research funders getting behind this issue in a big way. Over. Um, a question from Arlene Mitchell. Any thoughts about the new UN nutrition configuration? <laughs> Meaning thoughts for the future? <laughs> Well, I haven't given that one any thought, to be honest with you, uh, Arlene. It's a great, it's a great question, and it's great to hear from you. I really, that's interesting. It's one issue that I didn't really give much thought to because um, I'm not really a big person on too much reconfiguration, as it takes so much time and energy. You know, my proposed uh, kind of playbook was to create this kind of something above everything that could help prioritize and create clarity and draw, you know, draw attention to, you know, political attention to, but I honestly didn't really think about a new new configuration, if you will. Sorry. Um, a question from Rajul Pandialorj. Uh, how do we get more nutrition leaders? How do we revitalize nutrition education and mainstream nutrition into higher level education, including policy schools? Mm, that's a great question, and it's great to hear from you also, Rajul. Um, like leadership is, you know, can come from a lot of places, and I think I, I made a call. I made in in my talk that everyone needs to commit. Everyone listening here needs to commit to fostering the future leaders, the people you work with, um, to provide them for opportunities to grow. Leaders come at at all levels and in all, from all places. Uh, I kind of like the virtual world because, as I said in my talk, it creates opportunities for people you would never know could be leaders to have a stage and a voice in this discussion. I think the way we train people in graduate and postgraduate and even university education, you know, does tend to be somewhat technocratic and should be more politically oriented and learning about and how you actually get things done in the world? How do you know and how do you uh, seize political windows of opportunity? Um, I give credit, a lot of credit to the Sun or Scaling Up Nutrition Movement for really identifying and uncovering a whole vast set of new nutrition actors and leaders, people who would not have been in, in meetings like this, um, you know, 10 years ago, bringing them onto the stage because they found the issues compelling. So sometimes it's providing uh, the right venues for people to get engaged in the issue and have chances to show their leadership. That said, leadership without accountability is kind of an empty promise. So I do think that strong accountability mechanisms for holding 
leaders, whoever they are, wherever they are, accountable to follow through on their their rhetoric and their promises is also um, super important. So I think we need to build those accountability mechanisms at the same time as how we think about growing, you know, the human resources in support of and to be future leaders for nutrition. Over. I have a question from Yo, uh, who says economists disagree all the time, but uh, would you conclude that economists have no impact? Um, so issues of disagreement uh, among nutritionists and perceived lack of impact may be part of growing up, becoming mm -hmm. influential as a policy profession. <laughs> I, do, I think that's a really great point, actually. I think that it is part of growing up. I mean, uh, definitely. I hadn't thought of it that way before. Now, mind you, I am definitely not saying we shouldn't disagree with each other. I'm mostly saying we should probably not be disagreeing with each other all the time in public and in public fora, because people who aren't part of our you know, milieu and our environment will say, ooh, that's controversial, or I don't really know what's gonna happen here. Maybe I'll turn my focus and attention elsewhere where it's more of a sure bet and having, and having an impact or having a positive you know, reaction to what I propose to, to do or say or support. So I can't say that I, you know, I, I don't know that much about the interworkings of the economics field, but I do think it's, um, you know, nutrition could see this as a, um, as a bit of a growing pain. I don't think we're that nascent though, to really still be falling back on saying we're just new at this and, and, uh, I just, I do firmly believe that we need to have our fora for discussion and debate and disagreement and so on and so forth. And we do, but we also need to have the fora where we band together and have a common narrative voice and agenda that we're, we're, we're working toward. Over. Yes. Um, we invite more questions. We have more time. Uh, in the meantime, uh, let me ask you, um, what do you think the Food Systems Summit coming up uh, should try to achieve for nutrition? We hear a lot of buzz there. Everybody is trying to uh, get their act together and contribute and lead this and that. And, and it's not clear to me what um, there is in it for nutrition or what there should be and what should we aim for and what, what should we try to do uh, to make that Food Summit useful for us in nutrition. Hmm. Also a good question, and I'll be the first to admit I'm not part of the discussions on the Food Summit, and I think I've only listened, of all the webinars I listened to, I only heard one or two that related specifically to the Food Summit, so I'm not speaking from a place of, of um, great information or insight, but I know that we tend to think, you know, there's a community, a really vibrant community of people who are talking about food systems and nutrition and talking about them together and talking about healthy diets and what we need to do. And I think that we are, that community is developing, you know, a pretty strong narrative and there's debate and discussion, I'm sure. Um, but I think it may be, I'm not really sure about this, a community that's largely talking to itself and maybe hasn't made as much inroads into the broader food systems dialogue. 
So I think the groups and the tracks that are thinking about these things maybe need to think about how to ensure that their ideas are embedded in, I would hope there's gonna be some sort of overarching narrative that comes out from this summit, a set of uh, commitments and ways forward. And my firm hope is that the nutrition and healthy diet and um, coherent (laughs) approach to nutrition and food systems is part of that. It would need to be. I don't know where nutrition itself sits in the food systems uh, summit agenda. And we do have the Tokyo summit for that, but I think we need to someone, the community that's actively involved in both of these areas needs to be looking at them holistically and seeing where, what do we want to get out of this summit? How does it relate to the other summit? And more importantly, um, coming up with like an agenda that can be acted on and some accountability. So Again, I apologize for not knowing a whole lot about the Food System Summit itself, but what I'd be really kind of sad is if nutrition was just a sidetrack of that summit, was relegated to its own space, and it didn't interact uh, with the main agenda and the main goals, purposes, and outcomes from, from from that summit. Over. Thank you. Don't apologize. It's still a little blurry for even those of us who, who try to understand. <laughs> um, so a question from Parole Christian. Great talk and vision for a playbook, Ellen. Uh, you mentioned Sun. What do you think were its great successes and what does it need to be different, to do different in the future? Huh. Thank you, Parole, and great to hear from you. Um, and uh, yeah. So I was part of the early stages of the Sun movement and very involved into what was called Sun 2.0. And I think we're about to embark on Sun 3.0 and they've just come up with actually a new strategy, which I think will be released in the, in the new year. Um, I think early on the scaling up nutrition movement did a number of things right. And I think we have to acknowledge that that was 10 years ago. And so it's really important to look at how the world has changed and what changes need to happen and what needs to be done differently now, given where we are. And I think that's probably what the new strategy has done. I'm not aware of what the strategy entails. But what I think the Sun did right to begin with is it decided to be a little bit amorphous and an open tent that didn't try to like many movements in the global health space, like a lot of the movements in global health, like say, oh, we're gonna start this initiative and we're gonna have eight front runner countries and we're gonna invest and get a lot of money in those countries and then see um, what we can show happens. And hopefully that will attract more resources to do things more widely. Now that's an oversimplification, but that's like was a general model for, for some of these initiatives. And I think what the Sun did well, and David Nabarro is highly credited with this, with this vision, was to say, no, we're not going to be about picking a few countries. We're going to be about widening the tent and creating momentum and trying to organize at the country level and getting high level buy-in for nutrition and organizing structures and opening the tent up, coming in with plans and coming in with at least budgets and things like that, that some trying to organize ourselves in a way that we hadn't organized before. And I think that was pretty successful for creating momentum uh, in a number of countries where there might not have been momentum otherwise. Arguably, there are countries that have done very well in nutrition without being part of Sun. It's not to say that Sun was necessary for that. But Sun was able to kind of create multi-stakeholder platforms and a place for groups to come together 
and to be give more voice to advocacy and civil society and things like that. So I think those were the early kind of wins with Sun. And I don't really know where the Sun is, is heading, you know, in the next generation, but without a doubt, uh, things are more complicated because not just of COVID, but because, you know, the increased recognition that Sun, which originally focused on maternal and child undernutrition, can no longer avoid thinking about issues related to non-communicable diseases, overweight and obesity. And those, in fact, center largely around healthy diets and how do you ensure healthy diets and food systems that can provide that nutrition. And those are, those are maybe new issues that the Sun hasn't really been as successful in, in diving into. So I think it will need to, to, to figure out ways to, to do that. And I'll just stop there and hopefully I've answered, I've provided some food for thought in that comment, uh, in that answer to that question, Parul. Yes, for sure. Um, Mira, thanks Ellen, that was fabulous. Nutrition has in general focused more on interventions than on policies. What have we learned from other fields on this? <laughs> That's a good question. I'm not so sure. I spent a lot of time studying nutrition and not a lot, as much time as I should have studying other fields. But I do feel that, um, you know, policies matter. They're big levers. They make a big difference. And I feel like nutrition is underinvested in the policy space, um, largely. And it's maybe one of those fields where we really need to invest more in the policy space because nutrition, it's, many levels involves, you know, behaviors, day-to-day -day choices and things that happen all the time everywhere. And so policies um, are important levers that I think we need to get a lot more serious about and a lot more data on and um, focus more attention on, which is what I said in, in the talk. I can unfortunately, off the top of my head, call out another sector that has been more focused on the policy arena and trying to make high level changes in policy. I don't know if education does this better or, or other sectors, but I think it's worth something I put on the, on the list of things, <laughs> the playbook things, let's learn more about it because um, we, I, I think we, we need to do more on this. You know, our policies and nutrition are not I don't think are not having the effects that we want them to have, whether it's restrictions on marketing or other things related to what foods get produced and the food environments that we, we live in. I think we really do need to do more. Thank you. Great question. Uh, an anonymous question. You had mentioned a portfolio approach to financing versus one donor funding an entire project. What should, for example, charitable foundations be doing? Hmm. So, yeah, good question. So I, you know, when I was looking at how we were approaching innovative financing um, in the past, because I did some work on this and also, you know, specifically, specifically for this lecture, you know, I saw a lot of focus on like what I call project-based, single project-based ideas. Like we'll go into this country and we'll support this company and this company will produce healthy food, et cetera, et cetera. And I felt like that, you know, in looking at the success there, it's been pretty marred and not very, it hasn't really taken off. And there are a lot of reasons why it's hard to make these little investments. So my, I, I thought, 
you know, for philanthropies, even especially, you know, that can maybe hook up and find local investors, local people on the ground, either at the regional level or other, you know, investment banks and things like that, who know more about what's going on in the countries in any particular region or subregion that could do the work of scouting out where are their promising opportunities and seek ways to package them together for, you know, charitable foundations, by the way, come in all sizes and shapes. So there's big ones like the Gates Foundation, and there's other little ones that are involved in the space that maybe don't have the luxury of taking this approach. But I do think that in order to do things on a grander scale uh, and have more of an impact, first of all, who's ever working in the space that needs to be coordinated across all the different actors. And there are lots of different actors in the space. They maybe aren't nutrition or you know, food and nutrition actors, but there are a lot of investors in the space. So my first thought is, you know, looking for opportunities by engaging, you know, financing organizations or organizations that know who know the lay of the land on the ground, where are their opportunities for investment? And then partnering, looking to partner uh, with, um, with them and with others, but pulling things together and not trying to do it in a, in a one-off way. I don't know if that answers your question. There are definitely lots of ways that, um, that, that charities and you know, for small foundations, big foundations can get involved in this. But you know, that was my kind of thought for the futures. Let's not do this on a one-off way. I mean, even the DFC strategy, when I read it, it said, well, we're going to support 50 projects in this way. So one of their metrics is how many projects are we supporting? And I'm not trying to criticize that in any way, shape or form. It's great to have numbers to hold people accountable for. But I thought, well, that's a lot of work to put together 50 projects. Maybe there's a more a better way to be more efficient. And so some you know, foundations and you know, they have the ability to get in that space and figure out how can we be more efficient? How can we take the, you know, figure out where, what the right risks are? So I'd encourage uh, the, those who can to work in that area as well. Over. Uh, question from Purnima Menon. Could you speak to the issue of how the global community can really support local and nationally felt challenges alongside doing the hard work to support a global common narrative that can often take too long to resonate for countries? Hmm. Ah, Prima. <laughs> you know this. The answer to this question better than I do. I know. Uh, yeah, you know, when I was preparing this talk, I was really having a hard time thinking about like the balance between kind of what global nutrition does and what we need to do, and how does that you know synergize with the local, the, you know, what's happening in countries, which doesn't necessarily always follow what's happening at the global level. And I decided since this is a global talk to really focus on the global. But I do think, and I think you've seen this over and over again, that you know, there are ways to match global and local and ensure that there's this crosstalk between them. Because if we at the global level are just talking about things that are matter in Washington or Seattle or Geneva or London or wherever, we won't really, you know, we're gonna miss a lot of really important issues. So I think the, big ways that things can be supported, I definitely go in the listening and having a greater space in the conversation for local voices and local points of view and local realities. And then, I mean, you know, think global, act local. The research agendas, I think, are one way we have um, been uh, really 
trying to do or trying to support or have had some success in, in what I think you were suggesting, which is you know, empowering local research organizations to do the, the implementation and policy relevant research for their environments. And so globally, it may be a matter of making the resources available, the initiatives available that really focus on uh, the you know, country-driven, policymaker-driven research um, and you know, coming through and, and, and making sure there's funding, funding for that. But I feel that you know, as leaders develop locally, uh, they're also at a better capacity to kind of take the tools, materials, messages, syntheses, lancet papers, you name it, the evidence, the vast amount of evidence that we are so good at producing <laughs> and, uh, and really adapt it for, for local uses. And so um, making sure that global evidence gets, you know, gets translated locally is like exceptionally important. And I do think that was one of the things that we managed to do well you know, back in 2008 and 2013 was not just have global launches for the Lancet, but really support local launches and dialogue and have the series not be like the driver, but be something that helped, you know, move and catalyze discussions locally to, to advance more quickly. So I think there's lots of opportunity in this area and we need to listen more to, to local people to, to know where those opportunities lie and how we can exploit them or how they can be exploited in the future. A question from Dr. Alok Ranjan at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in India. Any guidance around how to ensure the evidence to policy to action continuum can be done successfully for nutrition? Hmm. <laughs> Thank you, Alok. <laughs> Never easy question. So yeah. Um, I've always spent a lot of time trying to make sure that, you know, policy isn't, or that evidence is, is, is translated into action. And uh, there's like a high level answer to that question is, and it's something that has been discussed a lot in other circles, is this idea of, um, you know, training people to work in the interstitial space between kind of research and policy and having, you know, these policy connectors um, that know how policymaking works and know how research works, whatever it is, nutrition or otherwise, and they really work to help make those connections. So I think there's one, you know, in my theme of empowering future leaders and creating future leaders and nurturing them, that, that's one area of definite need. Um, another area of definite need I felt like, you know, relates to making sure whatever reports and things that get published from the global level that synthesize evidence, uh, you know, that they really have a plan for how that evidence synthesis will get used in countries and can be useful in country level dialogue. So those people like you, Alok, and others sitting in countries that are engaging with a lot of different stakeholders all the time really have you know, materials that they can easily you know, take advantage of and use. Um, knowing that action, use of information is the end game, I think is important at the outset. It shouldn't be the afterthought. And so another thought is, and I certainly 
pre approached this when I worked at the Gates Foundation, you know, in every investment that I did, I always thought like, what is the theory of change here? What are we trying to change at the end of this or during this or through this and really focus on those outcomes, the actions, and not just on the generation of the, the knowledge and, and, and uh, the research itself. So I'll leave it at that. It's a, it's a great question. Thanks, Alok. Manuel Darcourt from HKI. Thanks for being both realistic and inspiring. Should nutrition programming and advocacy be more political, particularly towards com commercial interests? Hmm. That's a little bit vague. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that uh, first off, I'm a big proponent of advocacy uh, that is based on evidence, number one. Um, my personal view is that the answer to your question is yes, because I think in the bigger scheme of things, we can't, we can't skirt over the fact that when we look at malnutrition in all its forms, uh, when we look at the environment, when we look at other things, you know, there are, you know, conflicts of interest and issues that relate to commercial interests that have to be taken into account. And sometimes there needs to be advocacy and accountability around those things. Um, it's a difficult area. I'll leave it at that. But I think the short answer to your question is um, evidence-based, evidence-grounded, but not afraid to get a little bit more um, into some of these really complicated uh, issues that do in fact drive some of the outcomes that we are trying to address. We can't ignore that. And I think we have largely ignored that uh, as a sector over. From Lina Mai from WHO, great talk. What would you hope with the Biden administration to happen in the US for nutrition? Oh, lots of great things. <laughs> um, that's a really great question. And I have, uh, there's lots of, interestingly, the Biden administration and its global development, uh, our global health group has a number of nutrition people, if you will, nutrition sensitive people on the transition team, which I thought was interesting. Um, I'm super excited with Sean being the chief nutritionist at USAID and leading what's now this US government, whole of government nutrition coordination plan, which I didn't mention in my talk, but it is an opportunity to, for the next administration to um, use all the parts of the US government to come together and work you know, toward the common goals. And so um, there was earlier this week a stakeholder consultation for the US government around the next iteration of this coordination plan. And I think that is, will be really helpful as a kind of a roadmap. Um, the plan itself, from what I understand, they took a, p a page out of the playbook from Sun and created a senior officials group, which are the senior leaders in all the major institutions that touch on food nutrition issues to commit to being part of the global plan. And therefore that makes puts nutrition front and center on, on, on their agenda. So I think there's lots of things that are gonna happen at the operational level that aren't like the high level political Washington level that I think will be really important. Obviously it's, um, I think it's important for the US to rejoin WHO uh, and I think there's, that will happen. So I'm not gonna say that's something they should do because I think they will do that. But I do think that um, 
having worked for many years on this issue, you know, the US itself has waxed and waned in terms of how kind of global it was versus kind of US centric, US driven it was. And it was really nice, I have to say, during the Obama years to have the idea that the US would be part of a global dialogue and really emphasizing working with other countries and other institutions. It had more of a collaborative feel to it. So I'm optimistic, whereas in the past, it was really like the US and this is our policy and this is how we're, we're going forward. And we did great things, no, get me wrong, but I feel that like that global niche uh, in, environment and milieu and appreciation for the importance of acting globally and with the global community, I look forward to that happening again under the new administration. I really hope that that, that does come to fruition. Um, because I feel that, especially now when we're dealing with so many complicated and interconnected problems that relate to the, you know, to the environment, that relate to the food system, to re relate to health systems and, and nutrition's role and all of those things, it is important to take a, a global perspective and be part of the bigger, the larger global community. So that's a, a big high level hope that that will, that will happen going forward. Thank you, Lena. A question from Janice Alvi from USCID. You mentioned Wealth Start as critical for breastfeeding today. From your playbook, what is the most important for where we need to be with, with regards to breastfeeding in 2030? Huh, that's a great question. So, you know, I've been, my entire career, I've been a very strong supporter of breastfeeding from many different angles and many different initiatives. And I feel that it's not just, it's uh, just a critical, uh, intervention, practice, fact of human biology and our, and our species. Um, we did something really, we did a Lancet series on breastfeeding in 2016, which aimed to um, recharacterize breastfeeding and how we thought about breastfeeding practices and breastfeeding itself as not being just the individual woman's responsibility, but a societal responsibility, something that needed to be seen and supported as the norm and not the exception. So I feel that we really need to return to that issue and make sure that whatever playbook we have going forward for breastfeeding acknowledges that and realizes that the, um, that that needs to happen, that it can no longer be seen as just an individual mother's choice, but really a societal responsibility to enable and empower women to breastfeed. We definitely need more resources uh, in going into breastfeeding. I, at the Gates Foundation, chose to invest a lot when I was there on breastfeeding early on because I felt like it was a you know, uh, what we call a market failure, something really important that many people were not really investing in and trying to give it a new life. And I'm pretty pleased and proud of the work that's been done by Alive and Thrive, um, which IFPRI is a part of, um, and many others. Uh, and they continue to do great things. So I feel that going forward, you know, other, other, um, donors, USAID was a great supporter of breastfeeding and always uh, can step up and perhaps do more uh, and look for other partners and um, ways of conceptualizing breastfeeding and to ensure that, you know, the policy work gets done that needs to be done and the um, health systems work that needs to be done needs to be done. And then the normative work that needs to be done gets done. So I think I'll leave it at that. 
I could talk the entire lecture about breastfeeding. There's no question about that. <laughs> I chose not to, but I'm happy to come back and do that sometime. <laughs> we have quite a few more questions. So um, Victoria Quinn, food security and nutrition specialist. Ellen, thanks for this great talk. Can you please share your thoughts on the role of big food and beverage in improving the overall food system for nutrition? Uh, whoops, sorry. Wow, wow. Mm. Okay. Sorry. While we can't ignore them moving forward, as they are huge and everywhere, how do we get them to be more responsible to improve their unhealthy marketing practices and unhealthy food products? Are we being realistic that they can change? Any insights, lessons from you? That's a loaded question. Wow. Okay. So I thought I was pretty clear about this. <laughs> you guys don't. Don't hold back on the question. So yeah, I mean, there's no question that um, you know the food food industry, big food, if you call it. I mean, they're going to be providing foods. They're part of the ecosystem, and there's no doubt in my mind that they're also part of the challenge. Um, I said in my talk, and let me like pull it up here because I don't know that I could say it any better. Um, <laughs> I think I said something like, let me see. Where is it? Um, okay. Oh, yes, here it is. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I said governments can't abdicate responsibility for diet quality to the private sector. And then I said, or assume it's a, that uh, healthy diets is a personal responsibility solved by nutrition education alone. So I do believe, and I'm independent and retired, and I can say these things. <laughs> um, I do believe that there is a responsibility on the regulation side to try to get food companies to move faster. Uh, and to and that without that, I think that we won't make the progress that we need to, to make. And so I do believe that's why I made a, a point of saying that the research agenda around policy and coherent policies for food and nutrition enter you know a panel a high level independent authority that looks at you know food systems related policies which would include um, you know food companies big big food if you will um, you, you know to in, to look at the nutritional impacts as well as the environmental impacts because we have not just you know the effects of obesogenic foods and the unhealthy food environments we also we also have the actual environment to to think about in terms of the the food system and and the role that food companies play so um, my sense is absolutely we want the 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 private sector big food companies to be doing more and better, but just asking them to do that or relying, I think, only on their kind of um, goodwill or corporate social responsibility initiatives or, or things like that. I think it, it may result in some progress, but it's not going to be fast enough if it, if it happens. And I think we've seen that uh, all along, you know, the change is slow and incremental. And I think right now we're looking at, and we really do need to look at much, much more um, bigger sets of changes. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you for that very simple question. <laughs> yes, <laughs> a question from Stuart Gillespie. Great talk. There's a whole domain on social and commercial determinants of health and yet nutrition is relatively silent on this. Why is this and what can be done? Ah, why is this and what can be done? <laughs> um, so great question. 
I have my own theories for why this is. And I think a lot of it has to do with um, a little bit of our medicalized model that we've had for so many years and nutrition per se, and a large part of the uh, nutrition uh, world is, and the way things happen. I mean, we are really looking for things that will make a difference. And so a lot of research has been very much using a medical model, which isn't bad, but it's, I think it largely means that we've been looking for and or overlooking the social determinants aspects. And I think, you know, the, the COVID pandemic is really, as I said, laid bare that you can't, that's, that's, you know, once things go bad, you really see that these are the things, the systemic biases and the vulnerabilities are things you cannot overlook. So I do think going forward, um, there will be, should be more sensitivity to this. And particularly if the nutrition and the food systems join together, there may be much more appreciation for the underlying drivers and the inequities and the vulnerabilities. And, you know, there has been more focus and attention to what we call equity. Um, but a lot of that has been really focused, um, you know, narrowly say on income inequity and things like that. And I do think that you know social determinants uh, need to take more of a, a center stage, and then you know maybe the planning has to look for the near term for the things that have to be done. The what we we'll call I hate to use this term, but like the low hanging fruit of the things that need to be delivered today that can make a difference. Those things have to go forward. They shouldn't stop. There should be support for them. While there's also in the playbook, you know, really kind of a better understanding of some of the the drivers of the uh, you know underlying drivers and social determinants, and working with other sectors that directly address what those drivers are and what can happen. I think we nutrition can't take on everything, but I think as we think about our frameworks, how we train people, and what we incentivize, we need to be sure that we are not, you know, disincentivizing looking at these larger drivers of change that need to happen, um, not just for nutrition, but for health, for, for everything that, uh, everything in this, you know, that we we're trying, that global health and development is trying to do. Over. Okay, we're, we have five minutes left. We'll take uh, one more for now, see how it goes. <laughs> Sweta Manohar wondered what are more practical, successful approaches to have the nutrition agenda setting come from low and middle income policymakers, academics, and practitioners? I'm sorry, could you just repeat that? I, I'm sorry. Wonder what are more practical, successful approaches to have nutrition agenda setting come from low and middle income countries, basically, from their policymakers, academics, practitioners? Okay, I, I still missed the first part of that for some reason, but the idea is the agenda setting? Yeah, so yeah, how do we get, uh, or what is more practical or successful? What are the kinds of approaches to have the nutrition agenda setting come from low and middle income countries oh. as opposed to come yeah. from us, yeah. So one is the global agenda setting process, which really means having ensuring that we have much more diversity and representation from those uh, from low and middle income countries on, in all the in global fora, or in non-global fora, but in fora that are dealing with addressing global issues. Uh, that's one issue. And then, of course, locally, there are a number of things that can happen to ensure that nutrition gets on the local agenda. And some of those relate to, you know, the coordination that should occur among different groups. Um, uh, to bring forward issues and work together to bring evidence to bear and to engage in policymaking processes that happen at a local level. Um, I 
think I'll stop there in the interest of time. I hope I've answered this question, but I, I do want to go back. Uh, you know, Lena asked about the U.S. government. And one thing I forgot to say about the U.S. government is, yeah, kick it up a little. More money for nutrition wouldn't be a bad thing. <laughs> I think that they really do need to... Um, the need to, you know, they, the, the house, I think it was a house resolution just passed earlier this week about supporting, you know, global, uh, nutrition and, and uh, I think food security, I forget, I didn't read the exact resolution, but I noticed it was a bipartisan resolution, but it didn't, you know, have money attached to it. And I, when I read it, I said, show me the money. I think the, the new administration could really be more aggressive in funding uh, this agenda that brings together nutrition and uh, food systems uh, and environment and uh, and health uh, in a in a in a much bigger way than has been done in the past. So um, thank you for letting me interject with that uh, additional thought that came to me after <laughs> afterwards. Thanks, Ellen. Uh, I'm afraid we're going to have to stop here. And you, you, there are still some questions, uh, very good questions, but uh, unfortunately, we're running out of time. Uh, so obviously, uh, your excellent presentation brought about a lot of thinking, good questions, uh, uh, seeking advice from you one, la one last time. <laughs> Uh, so thanks for that. Thanks for the uh, really stimulating presentation and, and for all of your energy and passion in, in responding to questions. We recognize you there. Um, we miss you. Uh, do stay in touch uh, as much as you want to or can or are willing to do, given that you have decided to retire. Um, we, we, we do need your wisdom and your experience and, and just, uh, you know, bouncing ideas uh, would, be, would be great. We certainly have a very big agenda and, uh, and we'll need all of the minds we can have for the building back better after COVID. So don't go away and uh, <laughs> thank you for a fantastic lecture and, and answers to the question and the questions. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all and thank you, Marie. Thank you everyone for listening.